is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the internet and technology and how they're shaping culture and changing every aspect of our lives. How it's glorious and awe-inspiring, but can also have a dark side and maybe how we can prevent some of its abuses. In this episode, we're joined by Nothing Is Secure's Roy Natian to talk about phishing scams in the time of SARS-CoV-2. So when you're stressed, if there's a search of urgency, if there's an emergency, we tend to lower our guard and not think through things enough to be skeptical. And when that happens, that's an opportunity for a fisher to, to succeed in their attack. So especially right now, we're living in a pandemic. We're all really worried and stressed. And these, these criminals are taking advantage of that situation. More with Roy in a bit. Obviously, SARS-CoV-2 has upended our lives, but maybe it could help us think more about long-term space travel. The writer of the blog, Misconceptions in Space Journalism, Dr. Casey Hanmer, is here to talk about that. But first, Rick interviews Tyler Sandness of Rideshare Drivers United. Here's a bit more about him. I'm with Rideshare Drivers United, which is trying to become a union for Lyft and Uber drivers. My function there is I work as one of the full-time organizers. I'm a former Lyft driver who has been taken off the road to help organize fellow drivers so that we can have the shot of building a real labor union and bring some real accountability to the rideshare industry. When you say the rideshare industry, even though you were a Lyft driver, you're also uh, representing Uber drivers. Am I correct? So I talk with plenty of Uber drivers all day, and the organization does represent Uber drivers as well. Okay, great. I've been getting messages from the Rideshare Union about just what your issues are lately. So let's start with what are the differences between what problems you were having with uh, Uber and Lyft back before the virus and, uh, and before AB5, and how it has changed since the COVID-19 outbreak? Well, I mean, there's been plenty of problems in the rideshare industry for years. For at least the past five years, pay has continued to decrease for drivers. I know some people who, if they were working six years ago, were making about $80,000. Before COVID-19, you'd be lucky to pass $30,000 in a year. And that's before expenses. That drivers were misclassified. They were called independent contractors, but treated like employees because they were not given full information about their rides. They were not given a system that allowed them the freedom to make informed choices about what rides they accepted. They had to follow company protocol with how they ran and did their business and this done intentionally by the companies as a way to save money on payroll tax and minimum wage and overtime and expenses. And so it was a way to kind of exploit the workforce. Now, obviously, in this COVID-19 reality that we're all now in, those problems haven't gone away. It's only become worse because the entire demand for the market collapsed overnight for many of us. I remember that first week where people were saying, stay at home, get get indoors. The drivers were telling me that they saw 80 to 95% of their normal demand evaporate just like that in a single weekend. And then obviously everybody was out on the road on that night trying to make as much money as they could before everything went crazy. And now we're left in a situation where hundreds of thousands of drivers across the whole country and here in California are scrambling to try to get some kind of income. So much of the work we've been doing the past few weeks has been just trying to help drivers understand unemployment and what options they have available so that they at least have some income coming 
in, well, there's no demand on the road and finding an alternative job is, is next to impossible. Now, speaking of unemployment, did that AB5 law, which said that the rideshare drivers should be counted as actual employees, mm-hmm. did that help or hinder or not make a difference now that drivers are classified as employees to getting unemployment insurance? That's, a, that's an excellent question, and it's, it's been difficult because the unemployment system, when it came to when the virus hit, was not set up in such a way as to make it easy for drivers who, who are classified as employees under state law through AB to file for what is rightfully theirs. Because every driver who is working for these companies are employees. That is what AB5 says. And therefore, they are entitled to every dollar of unemployment insurance that they've earned through their hard work over the past few years. The issue is that one, that the website was not set up in time to be able to accept it. California was also blindsided by COVID as much as everybody else was. And two, the companies have actively hindered our ability to file as employees. And one of the ways that they've done that is through kind of messing with the normal process for how people can file for unemployment. Because normally what happens is that an employer is supposed to share income information with the state so that when you as an employee go to the unemployment office, they just have to look at a big database and they can see your previous wages for the past couple of months because they received it from the employer. Lyft and Uber are not sharing that information. And so Thousands of drivers have been filing as employees and been getting a notice from the state saying that they have zero dollars in benefit, which is not true. What that is, is that the system is just not geared in such a way as to recognize their pay. And so drivers are having a file of these appeals, which can last a few weeks, trying to get access to the full fund, which can be as substantial as $1,050 a week if they're able to to get the full benefit from California state unemployment, as well as the additional $600 from the Federal CARES Act. So these companies are doing this on purpose, obviously. Like they did on purpose, they kept cutting drivers' pay. You also, in some of your press releases, you talk about other ways to get money from Uber and Mm -hmm. Lyft. Talk about that. Yes, of course. So one of the big things that we've been doing this year as an organization is our wage campaign. We recognize that AB5 went into effect in January 1st, but the state has been rather sluggish to enforce it. They seem to be in in negotiations with Lyft and Uber to try to figure out, well, how are we going to affect this law and whether or not the company is going to go full forward with it. There's the fear of the lawsuits that could be incurred. There's just a bunch of factors where the state is really trying to not necessarily not enforce the law, but they're trying to figure out how best to enforce it. And it's left drivers basically like saying, like, look, we got this law passed. We, We got it signed by the governor. We got it passed by the legislature. Well, what's the deal here? Why is it taking so long for for this to go into effect? And one of the ways that we're pushing the states to work faster to start enforcement on AB5 is through a mass filing of wage complaints to the labor commissioner's office. Drivers created a little online tool that helps drivers 
you have an estimate of how many hours they work per week and what their schedule is. It then looks at how much money they've received from the companies. And then it has some basic assumptions, like you should be making $15 an hour, that you should be making $22.50 for overtime, that you should be reimbursed at $0.58 cents a mile for your vehicle under the IRS reimbursement. And then it generates those numbers and automatically sends it to the labor commissioner's office, where it's then joined with thousands of other drivers who filed already. And that process can push the labor commissioner to have powers to regulate over the company. You're saying none of that has been done yet. The state has really been sluggish about full enforcement, which is why it's up to drivers right now. It's our opinion that drivers right now are the ones that are in the key position to push the state by going through their offices, by going through their official channels, to push them and say, hey, we're your constituents. We help get this democratic law passed. And just because Lyft and Uber doesn't feel like following the law, that's no excuse for the state not going after lawless companies. And so that's why we had that. We had a big caravan of over 100 drivers last week in both San Francisco and San Diego pushing the state on this. We've now assisted over 3,000 drivers and filing for over $750 million worth in stolen wages, overtime pay, and expenses. And we're going to be continuing that campaign. And, and we encourage any driver that's out there interested in, in trying to claw back some of their stolen wages to visit our website at drivers-united.org and look for our wage campaign. And you could put in your information there and you'll be able to see how much money is owed to you and have the option to file it along with thousands of other drivers and demanding that you get paid what you are entitled to. Excellent. Now, Uber, I know, still complaining they haven't made a profit, is pushing back hard on the law. Do you know how that is coming? You're absolutely right that Lyft and Uber view this as a challenge to their business model. They are trying their best to try to make themselves exempt from this law. The way that they're doing that is through a ballot initiative in November. I believe they collected all the signatures they need to see that on the ballot. That would try to create a third category for drivers, a level that's higher than independent contractor, but lower than employment standards. And obviously, as an organization, we feel like that's not the way to go. That doesn't give proper representation to workers because only only employees can form a union in the United States of America, that it gets them off the hook for paying a minimum wage, it gets them off the hook for overtime, it gets them off the hook for, for all the other things that employees fought and worked for in this country. So we, we deem this to be an unacceptable option. And the way that we're fighting back against that is, is by talking with drivers and talking to our customers and letting them know that, hey, this is the reality of what these companies do to us and that you should not, as a California citizen, co-sign their export exploitation, because that's essentially what they're asking voters to do in November is to co-sign how they treat their workers, which is pretty dismal. Yes. I have one final question, and that is arbitration. Is that something mm. you and the rideshare union would be interested in or not? We want to see this go to, to the courts, and we want to see this have a precedent. One of the big problems that has been with, with arbitration and settlements in lawsuits the past few years is that it really hasn't changed the behavior of these companies very much. That every time there's a lawsuit, and there have been dozens over the years by drivers against the company, the companies will settle out of court, and that doesn't set any precedent. That doesn't change their behavior. It doesn't force them to change how they treat things. They just treat the settlement as costs of doing business and then continue with the same practices that got them sued in the first place. And usually without having to admit any wrongdoing. Exactly. And obviously that's just enabled them. 
Like that kind of system has just time and time again enabled them to grow their business model, make it even more abusive than it was before. And every once in a while, if people complain, just throw money at them until they go away. And then nothing ever has to be challenged. Nothing ever has to be changed. It's our opinion that we, we need precedent. We need law. We need to make sure that if these companies want to operate in the fifth largest economy in the world, that they have to live up to some basic standards for how they treat Californians. And that's what we're all about. We're ensuring that drivers have a voice on the job, that they have fair pay, and that ultimately they can have a union that fight for them and ensure that if there's a decision that's made by the board that's going to affect their lives, that it isn't just the board that gets to decide that, that they have to get consent from drivers too. Right. Now, uh, do you feel like uh, you are making headway? Oh, absolutely. Like we've grown significantly over the past few years. We started in 2017 with just a few folks in LAX parking lot. Now we have over 15,700 drivers signed up with us across the state. And we've seen a massive explosion in people signing up with us just in the past few weeks since the COVID-19 crisis started. And we anticipate that we're going to continue to see drivers come to us because we have information to help them. We have resources that we can connect them with from helping them find food banks in their area, to helping guide them through the unemployment process, to obviously helping them through that wage claim and at least eventually clawing back some of their stolen wages. On that positive note, thank you very much, Tyler, and we will be following up with you as we have been for the last couple of years. That was Rick Allen interviewing Tyler Sandness of Rideshare Drivers United. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. Up next, phishing has been around since the early days of the internet. But what about phishing in the time of SARS-CoV-2? I'm joined by Nothing is Secure's Roy Natian. And we start with a bit of an intro to phishing. Yeah, phishing in the time of coronavirus. So a little bit about phishing. We've all received emails and texts from like our banks or government organizations, maybe. How do you know those messages are actually from who they say they are. You really don't. And because of that, a lot of people actually go ahead and impersonate banks or other institutions to try to steal personal information from you. They'll ask questions, ask you to click a link. Basically criminals, whenever they do this, whenever they impersonate a legitimate institution in an attempt to like steal your money or confidential information, they're doing something called phishing. And that's phishing's not spelled with an F, but with a PH. Phishing scams have been around uh, long before the coronavirus pandemic hit us, but especially now when we're in a state of emergency, everyone's stressed out, we have worries and fears. These criminals take advantage of that state to go ahead and try to successfully fish us. So it's really important that we be extra careful in this time. What is your advice on being extra careful? We're going to start off really broad, and that's just trust no one. That's a little harsh. <laughs> trust no one. <laughs> well, see, if you actually do trust no one, you'll be pretty successful at avoiding any sort of phishing scam. Assume any email or text, even snail mail, actually, but this is mainly for electronic communication. Assume any email, text might be a phishing attempt against you. If you didn't start the communication, if someone's messaging you, just assume it's a scam. It doesn't hurt actually to assume it's a scam because you can always go ahead and visit the official website of whoever's contacting you and use the communication methods listed on the website to contact them. If it's you starting the conversation and you're getting the phone number or the email from the official website, then you're definitely safe to communicate that way. If you get a text or email out of the blue from like the IRS, from your bank, whoever, assume it could be a scam. There's no harm in doing that. 
you don't need to respond and definitely don't click on any links or if it's an email, don't open any attachments. What are some ways that could indicate that an email is fishy? There are a few indicators that can lead you to suspect an email is fishy. A few of those are, is the email address legitimate or does it look a bit weird? For example, if there's an email from the IRS, check the email address. Sometimes some people that attempt phishing attacks will go ahead and use like a Gmail address, but it'll be something like irs-secure at gmail.com. Obviously, if there's at gmail.com at the end, it's not actually from the IRS. So pay attention to what the email address is. Another thing to look out for is are there grammatical errors, misspellings, or weird phrases? Uh, A lot of the time, these phishing attacks come from countries where English isn't the first spoken language. Another thing to look out for is, uh, are they asking you for money, but in weird ways? So there's a common scam done many, many different ways to obtain gift cards from the target. So if they're asking for a gift card, pretty sure it's a scam. Also, if they're asking for Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, it's definitely a scam. And then if the email just feels off, for example, if you receive an email from like your aunt and it doesn't sound like your aunt, maybe call your aunt to double check that she sent it. That's another thing that happens. Sometimes you end up getting emails that are just really weird and long and and it doesn't sound like the sender. That's That's a good indicator that might be a scam. You mentioned this a little bit earlier about if an email has a bunch of questions in it and you're responding to them. One of the things you see on social media all the time are those posts that people have. Where were you born? Where was this? Where was that? And ask all these very eerily similar personal (laughs) identifying questions and people just share that stuff on Facebook. Is this another form of phishing? Yeah. So many of us have logins to accounts. And when you set up an account on a website, they sometimes ask for security questions. And these security questions often are things like, what was the name of your first pet? And what's the birthday of this person? And what street were you born on? And you, you find those questions sometimes asked on online quizzes. If it's targeted against you, it's one way for someone to get that information needed to go ahead to reset your password on an account and then gain access to your account completely. So again, don't give out personal information online, especially if it looks like a fun quiz. It could be targeted against you to get that information so they can uh, reset your password on an account. What are some psychological tactics that quote unquote fishers or people who are behind phishing schemes are using? When it comes to phishing, the people doing the phishing, they'll try to exploit some some psychological weaknesses that we all have. So when you're stressed, if there's a search of urgency, if there's an emergency, we tend to lower our guard and not think through things enough to be skeptical. And when that happens, that's an opportunity for a fisher to to succeed in their attack. So especially right now, we're living in a pandemic. We're, we're all really worried and stressed. And these, these criminals are taking advantage of that situation. Right now, two big fears, I think pretty much all of us are experiencing, are fears regarding financial things and fears around the health of ourselves and our loved ones. So when it comes to financial fears, one of the scams I've seen involves the stimulus checks. So there are people that really need this money. It's very important to them and getting that money will help them a lot. So, so that urgency and stress around the money lowers down people's guard. So sometimes some criminals, these fishers, will go ahead and send a text or an email looking like it's from the IRS, but it's not, asking people to give away personal information, maybe give their banking info, give the social security info away. The IRS won't ever ask you for that information through a text especially. So be careful, just don't respond to those messages. And again, 
it's always okay to double check. Go to the official IRS website or your bank website and get the phone number from there, or the email from that website and contact them yourself. Again, any communication that you didn't start is a potential avenue for a fisher to attack you. So one phishing attempt I've personally experienced was an urgent sounding text asking me to verify my social security number and some other information because my social security number was going to expire or, or be or be shut down. Now, what's going on here? Well, first of all, all, there's all this stuff going around around the IRS check. There's that urgency that your social security number is going to expire. For a lot of people, they're gonna it's going to hijack their thinking. The urgency and the emergency around social security number expiring is gonna gonna make them not be skeptical. And then they'll go ahead and maybe click the link or respond and fall for it. So again, any time you get a message, especially if it's like from sounds like it's from the bank or the government, don't click on the links, don't open the attachments. You should initiate the contact and communication yourself through the website and, and the contact forms on the website. Are there specific phishing examples around people who may be out of work? This sort of scam where someone's contacting you with an easy job, especially now like a job to work from home. Again, if you're not initiating it, be skeptical. Don't trust it. And if you wanted to contact, actually look up the organization or the, the business that's offering the job and see if they're real, call them and ask them, like, are you doing this? Are you sending out texts? There are a lot of instances where someone will pretend to be a business just so that if someone Googles them, they look legitimate. But then if you actually call the business and ask them, have you been sending out texts? Have you been sending out messages? The business will say they haven't. So it's important to be aware of that. In times of stress, obviously, as you said, more susceptible to letting our guard down. What are some things we're seeing around health that we should be concerned about? We all want to be safe and we all want to be healthy. We want all our loved ones to be healthy. And when when that health is threatened, it leads to a lot of stress. And when you're stressed and looking a solution to take care of that stress, uh, we tend to let our guard down. If, if a solution arises that actually solves the problem and looks straightforward and simple, we tend to gravitate towards that and accept it more easily. Scammers exploit this, uh, our tendency to gravitate towards simple and, and straightforward solutions to things. The world's generally more complicated and things are more difficult than we think. So whenever a simple solution comes along, we gravitate towards it. Well, for the record, to be very clear, injecting bleach does not do anything. It's very, it's very bad to ingest or inject bleach into your body. So don't do that. But on top of that, there are all sorts of quack snake oil salesmen selling their wares online, trying to trick you out of your money. Do your research. But if anyone in any or anything claims that it can cure or prevent COVID-19, they're either lying, delusional, or both. So avoid those things. Don't spend your money on that. Another way to exploit this fear around health is people sending out messages regarding health insurance, cheap health insurance. There are a lot of people that don't have health insurance or their coverage is lacking and seeing these messages that were, were they can be provided a solution for that gives fills them with hope and they gravitate towards it, but they're generally scams. In summary, I trust no one, right? <laughs> Correct, you've learned well. Trust no one. Assuming any message is a phishing attempt really will take care of you in many situations. Just make sure you start the communication yourself. So if someone sends you a message, you don't have to respond. You don't have to click on the link or anything. Just contact whatever organization is directly through their website. Or if it's like a family member or someone at work that sends you a strange email, call them. It doesn't hurt to spend a minute just to call and double check. And it's also nice just to chat with someone on the phone. <laughs> so yeah, when in doubt, double check. So, so be careful, do your research and yeah, be safe out there. 
that was Nothing Is Secure's Roy Natian about phishing in the age of SARS-CoV-2. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. In the last part of the show, Dr. Casey Hammer is here. He works at NASA's JPL and is the writer of the blog Misconceptions in Space Journalism. And we talk about how social distancing may help us think better about long-term space travel. Six months ago, when I was writing blogs about long-duration space travel and so on, one of the real big question marks has always been how the human animal, that is to say the meat suit and, and brains and so on that we walk around in, would react to the privations of space travel. And and six months ago, those of us who, who advocate for human space exploration really would have to point toward historical analogies. Well, you know, my great-great-grandparents uh, you know, traveled out from England to Australia and it took them eight months on a small leaky boat without GPS or really functional navigation of any kind and at the whim of the oceans and whatnot, and, uh, and they survived. And I don't actually have any primary accounts from them, so I don't really know what it was like. But we do have primary accounts from people of that era traveling around the world, uh, often voluntarily. And, you know, it was just kind of what they had to do in order to do what they did. But at the same time, people in those eras had not entirely identical psychological makeup to us today. And that's actually one of the tremendous privileges of living in this day and age, which is that most of us will never know what it feels like to bury a child who died in childhood, let alone multiple children. Yet, I can tell you with absolute certainty that my great-great-grandfather, only three of his 11 children survived to adulthood. So that's, that's something that maybe you, know, you say, well, if you grew up in a, in a world where, where every year 10% of the children die of smallpox, perhaps getting on a boat for a year to go to Australia is not such a bad thing, you know, like in terms of the overall mess that your psyche would be. And you can also point at things like NASA studies and, and uh, various examples of, of people who voluntarily gone into isolation. But now, thanks to you know, our very quick adaptation to working at home and uh, socially isolating, we actually have a, a much better kind of grasp of what it might feel like to uh, voluntarily uh, send yourself into a spaceship for six months and, uh, and fly all the way to Mars or go to the moon or live in a situation where you, where you are inside most of the time. And if you want to go outside, you have to put on specialty equipment and you have to take precautions to minimize the possibility of harming yourself or others or placing undue burdens on the people whose job it is to look after you. And so, uh, you know, and, and enduring confined spaces with loved ones and, and colleagues and friends and finding ways to communicate and solving problems and, and getting what needs to be done done, you know, despite somewhat unusual circumstances. So I think that is um, our current situation in terms of all 7 billion humans adapting to COVID have, has actually given us an opportunity to reflect uh, more deeply on what living and working in space might feel like. That was Dr. Casey Hanmer on how social distancing may help us think better about long-term space travel. You can find out more about what Casey is up to by finding him on Twitter at CJ Hanmer. We've covered the challenges for rideshare drivers and how that's increased since the coronavirus crisis began and how to protect yourself from phishing scams and how those scams have evolved in the age of SARS-CoV-2. And in this case, trust no one. And that's it for Digital Village. We'll get through this. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org and clicking audio archives in search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to regular guests Roy Natian and Dr. Casey Hanmer. KPFK is 100% listener-sponsored. You can donate now and keep glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio going at KPFK. Just go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. 
Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen, and we'll we'll see see you online. online.